We don't want to see a 40-foot cast. We don't want to see a 50-foot cast, especially in fast water. We want to see an accurate 15 to 20-foot cast. Isn't that what you're supposed to do, Mike? Only if you're a poser. It's a no-jiggle zone. It's a no-jiggle zone. You just took a <laughs> two-minute tangle and turned it to a 10-minute tangle. No jiggling allowed. Right, and that is the penalty box right there. Uh, saltwater fishing, obviously, you need to carry 60 to 80 feet in the wind with a hostile Bahamian guy behind you screaming at you that your right. gas is awful. Right. David, it started off like a lot of young kids with my father taking me fishing to a, a lake outside of Charlotte, where I grew up, Lake Norman. My uncle had a river house there. And so he stuck a cane pole with a worm in my hands and it kept me entertained the entire day. And it became kind of a babysitter for my dad. He go, all right, I'm just going to stick this fishing rod in his hand. And it would keep me, it would literally keep me entertained. And then as I got older, we would go to the beach and I was catching pinfish and small little dock fish with that same cane pole. And then when I got to be about six or seven, I got my first Zepco 202. That advanced to a Zepco 33, which I still have. And oh, nice. then at uh, age 12, I advanced to the spinning reels, like Berkeley spinning reels, and uh, started going after bigger game carp and Spanish mackerel off the piers. And, uh, and then somewhere in there, my dad bought a fly rod. I didn't ask for it. It just appeared one day, a six and a half foot Eagle Claw fly rod with a Martin reel, level taper line, no backing, and a little metal eyelet to attach the leader. I didn't even know what a leader was, so I just put four feet of uh, eight pound strand on there. And he also bought me a cardboard display with about a dozen little brim popping bugs. And I had seen a little bit of fly fishing in my sports field, so I said, this is neat. I'll try this. And within about an hour, I had popped most of the cork off those popping bugs simply from not <laughs> hesitating. I didn't have any instructions, so I didn't know what I was doing. My dad didn't know what I was doing. And so it was a pretty short-lived romance, me and the, the fly ride. And I even remember one time I put dough balls on it and threw it out there and called a huge carp. And I think that's yeah. a fly fishing mortal sin to fish bait with a that's fly ride. Somebody's losing their mind right now. Yes. Over that So one. the fly rod <laughs> collected a lot of dust. Many years went past, and I always stayed fishing. Uh, I went to Appalachian State, and uh, my first year, I didn't do a lot of fishing. And because I didn't do a lot of studying, Appalachian State gave me a, an, a furlough. Said, you don't need to come back next year. So I went back home to Charlotte, and my dad said, if you want to play you got to pay. So I ended up at a fly shop in Charlotte, uh, an outdoor fly shop. And this was before River Runs Through It. This is early 80s before the River Runs Through It made the sport popular. So what what is an outdoor fly shop? Uh, well, we sold Patagonia. We sold North Face. We sold kayaks. We sold tents. Okay. And we also had a okay. big fly department. And at that time, there was only a handful of fly shops in, in North Carolina. We were the only uh -huh. one in Charlotte. So... I would watch these 3M videos. Those had just gotten out. This is way before YouTube. I sat down and started watching fly fishing and fly tying videos. And then my right. boss, Joe Hedrick, my first employer in the fishing business, took me out of the yard and showed me the fundamentals of how to throw the fly line. I quickly learned why I was snapping all my popping bugs off. So he was my first instructor. He never took me fly fishing, but he gave me my first casting lesson in the grass. And then I, in turn, started teaching people to cast in the grass. So to make a long story short, I went back to Appalachian, my triumphant return with a new Orvis Clearwater 7.9 far and fine, which I still have, and got my buddies involved. I'm like, guys, got to start fly fishing. I watched all these videos. I read all these books. So we learned on our own after class how to fly fish. And it's important now as an instructor that I went through all these rough years of trying to learn to catch a trout on the fly. I thought it was impossible. I was get, even though I'd watched the videos and I'd read the books, I was still not having a great success rate compared to spinning rods. But over time, many years, three or four years, we got the handle on fishing small streams. And it was over a year before I caught seven in one day. Seven trout one day was my milestone. 
that was my goal. And ironically, David, it was the first day that I fished fast water as opposed to slow water. And it was the first day I fished a black woolly booger. And a light went off going, okay, the slow water's tough, fast water's good, and I love the woolly booger. So I became a woolly booger fanatic for the next four or five years. So many, so many people don't, and I used to be the same way, we're, we're anti-woolly booger, you know, and... I don't know. It's probably caught as many fish sometimes, I think, as many fish as in Adams. You know, a different tr- different technique, different fly and all that. But still, just it's it's a it can make your day sometimes. Well, it did. It saved my butt a lot. But I finally learned not to rely on it all the time. Because, as you know, in fishing, oh, no. any kind of fishing, offshore, inshore, yeah. fly fishing, spin fishing, you can't rely on one fly or one technique. Here's how I got out of the woolly booger phase. I got a good handle on the small streams. And then one day I ventured over to the South in Tennessee, which I'd heard about. And I went over to the dam, the weir dam, and I came across all these fishermen standing side by side, throwing straight downstream. And I'm like, look at these idiots. They don't know what they're doing. They're throwing (laughs) downstream. You can't fish downstream. And so I waited below them. I'm probably 50 feet away, throwing straight at them. They're throwing straight down towards me. I've got my woolly bugger on. There's rising fish everywhere. I didn't get any bites from my woolly bugger, so I went to my second fly, the Adams. Didn't work. Then I went to my third fly, the Caddis. Didn't work. So then I put on my trusty gold rib hairs ear. Didn't work. Then I put on my trusty pheasant tail. I got skunked my first day on the South Holston with hundreds of rising fish feeding all around me. And uh, so I had to ask an old gentleman, how are you doing this? Show me your fly. And he looked me up and down and said, son, your rod's too short. Your leader's too short. Your flies are too big, and you're throwing straight upstream. So all that knowledge accumulated <laughs> from trial and error in Boone did not work over in Tennessee, and we're going to get to that later, the differences between the small streams and the big streams and the transitions that you have to make. Good, good. What we need to, And that was a South Holston, you said? South Holston, PhD yeah. fish. Welcome into Southeastern Fly, and thanks for listening. Ollie, we've got a lot of folks that listen on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, just probably about anywhere that you listen to and download podcasts. We've got a contest going on right on right now for the wittiest five-star review. So often we see people check the five stars and give the, hey, your podcast looks great, sounds, sounds great, looks great, all that. But we want to see how witty these folks are that uh, that listen to our podcast i think we from the from the people that have contacted me we have a lot of really good intelligent listeners out there believe it or not i mean i, I know that's hard to believe with me being involved in this but a bunch of really good folks so we decided to do this contest of who could give us the wittiest five-star review and that gets a bag of swag is what it gets a bag uh, of swag a bag of swag right so far we've got a few reviews out there that are pretty good fly angie babe did, did one a while back and then a big e270 did one too so thank you both for kind, the kind words we've got some more folks out there on some other other venues that are uh, are leaving us leaving us some some really good reviews and we appreciate it today our guest has worked in a fly shop beginning in 1983 and then you moved on to a guide a regular guide uh in wyoming in 1991 uh you worked in fly shops through college former fly shop owner is that right from a fly shop employee to a head guide to a fly shop owner to back to just being a guide working out of my house and anybody who's owned a small seasonal retail <laughs> can understand the joy of getting out of that racket that's <laughs> like like the day the day you buy a boat the day you sell a exactly boat. both of the happiest days of your life <laughs> oh so now you own blue blue ridge anglers and you guide the wataga the south holston the big horse the nolichucky the wilson this guy calls western north carolina home please welcome to the podcast ollie smith ollie thanks for stopping by i'm I'm glad to be here david you said that you started with a cane pole and you ended up at the beach fishing so i'm at the beach today we're we're at st george which i think ollie you can probably see behind me i don't know if you can see the beach or not but we're right on the beach and i've been it's rough down here there's a post hurricane and then there's a tropical depression or tropical storm kind of west of us but I can't wait to get out there and catch whiting. Have you? Did you? When you went to the beach with your cane pole, did you? Did you try to catch whiting? The whiting, the whiting were in the surf. So the the cane pole that I did, and I'm talking when I was four and five years old, I was in the sound catching little tiny black bass, little oh, tiny pinfish, okay. little tiny pigfish. The croakers are when I advanced up. 
uh, probably age 12 <laughs> when I got my sand spikes and started going out in the ocean. So I called yep. a lot of pompano, a lot of croaker, a lot of Virginia mullet. Uh, never called any puppy drum in the summer there, but uh, called a lot of skates, called flounder. You know, the ocean's so fun because it's such a mixed bag fishery. Yeah, that's, I mean, you never know what you're going to pull out, do you? It's, it's, that's why it's in, enticing. <laughs> So you went on, you graduated from uh, a uh, cane pole, spinning rod, and you said you still have some of your, your Zebco stuff, which I, I wish I still had some of mine. Yep. I really do, but I'm sure it's long gone. And then you said your dad bought you a fly rod, and I think you went through the same thing that most everybody that I've talked to on this podcast goes through, the same where they take one or the other or both, and then they kind of you know try to fish with one and then bring the fly rod in and you know, put it down, pick it up, and, and, and try to make sure that you catch fish. So you take the spinning rod. and It's a crutch. You catch a fish. It is a crutch. It really is. And it's. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because I think it's a confidence booster for you to know I'm not fishing somewhere uh, where there's not a fish, meaning that I take my spinning rod, I catch it on whatever method I use with a spinning rod, make sure that, all right, they're there, they're biting today, and I have a chance. Those three things. Then you bring up that fly rod, and as you progress, you start leaning less and less on that crutch, as you call it. And then eventually, there comes that day where you just leave the spinning rod in the truck. That's one milestone. Second milestone, in my mind, is the day that you leave that thing at home, not necessarily knowing, am I going to catch a fish or not? Which, and, and as I've said many, many times before, if you tell anybody you're going fishing the next time they're going to see you, they're going to want to know how many you caught. So that's a tough one. Uh, there's a little bit of... Uh, pride involved in that as well exactly yeah it's just it's tough it's tough but so you've you've been through i think we've been through all the same things and, and you talked a little bit about your dad bringing you up into fishing so once once you got back to appalachian state and, and started working toward toward your or back into western north carolina and started working toward your your career as it is now what what were the next steps that you took ollie well i ventured to the dark side after i got out of college <laughs> at age 28 i went back to charlotte my dad said so what are you gonna do now i went um i don't have a plan yet dad i ended up in alaska i bought a one-way ticket to alaska i uh, <laughs> didn't know a, i didn't know a soul up there but i'd heard you can make a lot of money on a fishing boat and i paid for most of my college so i needed some quick cash so i ended up in homer alaska and worked on a purse saner netting salmon and in one summer i paid off all my college loans so i triumphantly came back to charlotte said mom dad i can be a commercial fisherman now and again this is pre-river runs through it so there weren't a lot of fly fishing jobs in the south at the time so i ended up at uh the outer banks on a shark fishing long liner this was back when you could fin sharks for shark fin soup and i did that for a year made a little money doing that where did, where did y'all fish out we of? were out of one cheese North Carolina, an ancient old fishing village off the Outer Banks, right near Nags Head and right near Manio, yep. the Lost Colony. About. That was quite an interesting experience being a Charlotte boy, ended up on a longliner off the Outer Banks, uh, on, on a just like on the Perfect Storm, the movie. <laughs> that led to a, another Juan Cheese position in South America where I longlined for tuna and swordfish for a year and came back, said, Mom, Dad, I'm done with that. It's too dangerous. And so I Came to Boone and took my earnings and bought into a fly shop. That was 1994. This was several years after the River on Stewart came out. And fly fishing was really gaining gaining ground. A lot of people were doing it. A lot more people uh, from when I worked in my fly shop, my first fly shop in the 80s, I could see that the trend was everybody was getting into fly fishing. And so we hit it at the right time. And we had a great little retail business. And I was the head guide. And uh, we had a little retail side. And I ran it. I ran the guide program for about seven years, but we kept going broke in the wintertime. And uh, finally, I sold my shares seven years after we started in that little fly shop, still in existence today, but it's already on its probably fourth owner since I got out of it. Really? And I still go out there. I still go to this little uh, fly shop near where I live. I love hanging out there, and I want to see it do well. But now I just got out of my home. I don't have a storefront. I just have people call me. My old customers call me. I think I'm right. 30 years into the business now, 27 guiding. And so uh, I like the fact that when I come home, I don't have to look at the books or do inventory. I just uh, call my fellow guide buddies, see where they fished, see how their day was. And then my day's done. And I, get, and I can start getting ready for the next day. Time flies and organizing gear. So I like the guiding side of the business. And uh, I didn't mind the retail part of the business. I loved hanging out at the fly shop. 
it just wasn't profitable. It didn't pay the bills. It's a tough business. I mean, it really is. But I have a lot of gear now. Cash <laughs> poor, yeah. but I'm rich in yeah. gear. Yes, aren't we all? Boy, that's the truth. So working in the, working as a, a guide, what do you think the, the biggest, the most common mistake is that you see folks make? If, you're, if we're talking to the listener out there that maybe is a entry level, maybe up to almost intermediate, that that person, I know that's two, for me, that's two, two different types of mm-hmm. persons. So the intermediate person is maybe not bringing the rod up quick enough and maybe probably not stopping, you know, up high enough wanting to break their wrist and, and bring it back, bring the rod tip, you know, too far mm-hmm. back. But let's set those folks aside and let's just go to the intermediate person that now they're ready to cast. They're pretty good casters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and what's the biggest thing that you see, the biggest hurdle that you see for those folks? I, I've got, I'm going to answer this with two parts. I read a great book called wisdom of the guides. And this gentleman went around the country and he interviewed some of the top fishing guides at the time. And he asked him a battery of questions. And one of the questions was, what is the biggest mistake you see trout anglers make with out a doubt, they all said people casting beyond their means, meaning people are trying to cast too far. I don't play golf, David, but I make a lot of golf analogies. I tell people whether they're beginner or intermediate, I'm like fly fishing for trout's like chipping and putting. It's the short game. We don't want to see a 40 foot cast. We don't want to see a 50 foot cast, especially in fast water. We want to see an accurate 15 to 20 foot cast. So when I have a guided trip, with a beginner or an intermediate we'll be on public water somewhere and i'll point to somebody downstream and like watch that guy right there and the guy will be false cast and false cast and false cast and false cast i'm like that is not efficient fishing and my guest will look and go isn't that what you're supposed to do i'm like only if you're a poser the fish are in the water last time i checked and the more your flies in the air the more tangles you get the more trees you catch the more fish you spook and all the if you watch the guides when they're fishing there is very little false casting. The flies are in the water. There might be a short little false cast to dry a fly. That's legit. Yeah. But you'll see the beginners standing out there and every single cast, there's three or four false casts. And especially with an indicator rig, that should never be false casted because of the tangles that occur when you mistime your cast. That's 10 minutes in the penalty box when you train wreck a, a, a double nymph rig from false casting too much. <laughs> So the guides don't truth. like false casting. <laughs> Streamer fishing, no problem. Dry fly fishing on the South Holston on high water, a couple false casts, no problem. But in a small stream, there's just no place for it unless you are strictly throwing a single dry fly. So that's my big gripe. I see people casting too far, and I see people casting way too much. Here's the exception to the rule. One of my great friends, great customers, I've been to Montana with he and his family three times. I taught he how to, him how to fly fish and his boys and his wife. Rich has this beautiful Winston rod, and Rich loves to cast. And I used to get on him. Rich, he'd be in the back of the boat. He could fish his butt off. He would do three false casts every time he threw the line. Dry fly, nymph rig, whatever. And I used to get on him. And he'd kind of laugh. He wouldn't say anything. And he would catch fish. And All then right. one day he looked at me and goes, Ollie, I just like to cast. I went, no problem, Rich. As long as you know where I'm coming from about efficiency, you like to cast, that's your bag. We're good now. We're all good. But I think his guy in Montana got on him, so he doesn't false cast as much as he used to. But some people just genuinely love to cast. I have no problem. Oh, yeah. But the beginners and intermediates, we got to ratchet that thing back and get back to you want to look good on the water casting or do you want to look good catching fish? There is a difference there, and that short game is a great analogy to to, – to help folks especially especially newer folks that have played golf before because there are a lot of a lot of things that that uh, you can line up between golf and fly fishing unfortunately i hate to say that i know, you know but it, there really is because it's, it's, there's some timing involved and there's some focus involved i would say that that person that false casts two or three or four times every time at the end of the day you know that they are completely worn <laughs> out you know not just their shoulder not just their elbow but i mean just in, in general you know you're standing out there fighting the wind sometimes if you're waiting you're fighting the current you know the less energy you expend the better off it's like you know fish aren't going to run out you know all the way around across the river to get a get a meal because they don't want to expend that energy we we should kind of think along the same lines of i don't want to 
use every bit of energy I have to catch that one fish, unless it's huge, then that's a different story. Story. We a lot of times we spend a whole lot of energy with very little results. Exactly. And we don't want to do that. Now so. I do have to retract the distance false casting when you go smallmouth fishing. There's a lot of false uh-huh. casting. You're throwing a lot more line. Uh, saltwater fishing. Obviously, you need to carry 60 to 80 feet in the wind with a hostile Bahamian guide behind you screaming at you that your cast right. is awful. Right. So there is the time and place. Everything that we discussed, David, there's always going to be an exception to the rule. As a guide, I don't want to lay down concrete, you got to do this or you got to do that. Don't ever do this because it'll come back to haunt you. I'm just saying generally when you ask a question, I'll say this is what I see. This is how I feel. There's going to be an exception to the rule for everything the only rule i know that there's not an exception to if you get a tangle don't take your rod and try to whip it around Jig, don't jiggle the rod when you get a tangle this is, this is a no jiggle this zone. is a no jiggle zone <laughs> you just took a two-minute tangle and turned it to a 10-minute tangle no jiggling allowed right and that is the penalty box right there for sure and if you do it enough times you owe me a case of beer too <laughs> oh so you're now you're sitting in north let's go back and now you're sitting in north carolina mm-hmm. You just sold your got your your uh, fly shop and you're guiding now and and now you've got some intermediates and and you've got some uh, beginners and you're trying to work your way through all that which is not always the easiest thing to do when you're first starting out especially because you don't know exactly what's going to make people tick and that sort of thing you know so where where are you fishing now as as the uh, as you start uh, as you start your business let's talk about it. I know you said the South Holston mm-hmm. and David the first thing you just mentioned the the customers. When I get the phone call for a customer, new or old, I need to find out who are they bringing. Are they bringing beginners? Are they Mm -hmm. bringing somebody advanced? Are they bringing somebody who's fished all around the world? I need to know these these answers before I decide where we're going to fish. I want to try to match the, the day to their ability. And we do get an awful lot of beginners. And I love beginners since I struggled so long at learning how to do this that I can take a raw beginner, 12 year old kid, and what took me four years to learn, I'm going to show that kid in four hours how to catch fish yeah. without all the pain that I went through. We love beginners. Absolutely love beginners. But the hardest day is when I get, say, a real hotshot angler who wants to throw all the way on the bank. And then I got the beginner that I'm trying to keep in the fast water for the easier fish. And that right. kind of creates a little bit of a logistical problem. And we always end up finding some way to make it all work. But uh, when you have... yeah varied skill level in the boat and and different expectations that creates uh, a good kind of dilemma for me i like a challenge um so back to your question of where i fish we have a lot of stock fish in western north carolina starting october the first so i start pre-selling trips to beginners a lot of father sons mother sons mother daughters beginners that want to get into it i'm like listen let's wait till the beginning of october when we restock our small streams around Boone and Banner Elk and Blowing Rock, uh, the famous Wilson Creek, Helton Creek, uh, Big Horse Creek, uh, the Tow River. These are called delayed harvest streams, meaning the harvesting of the fish is delayed by several months. Bottom line, that means I've got eight months of catch and release fishing, which is great for my beginners. But then in June, you can harvest the fish, and then none of the guides go back to those streams I just mentioned after June because people keep them all. So June, July, and August, we're not doing the small stock streams in the summer we have to transition over to the small wild trout streams which is tough on beginners or we go to the tailwaters over in tennessee which are good for all skill levels you can pretty much people put people on the on the watauga at any level and they're gonna they're gonna have a pretty good day really i mean i'm that like you said there's always an exception but what a great river that that's just it's one of my favorite places as you know to go go and uh and there's so many different sections so many different techniques you can use um so many different flavors of of water and it's just what a great river that is so let me let the listener in on a little secret here uh so let me tell you how ollie and i have met through a mutual friend but i uh i ended up in the hospital several years ago i don't know it's probably been three or four years ago now and whenever i got out i was a little tired of course you know how it is and i called a friend of mine and I said hey I said in about a month I'm going to want to go up to the Watauga and I'm going to want to go up there and fish and of course my friend was like yeah I'll go with you because and I knew I didn't want to take my boat I just wanted to get up there and relax it was at the end of the season I was pretty tired and I wasn't feeling all that great so that the other mutual friend said hey why don't you call Ollie and just get a day or two in his boat 
So we did, and we floated a little bit of the upper section, <laughs> and then we went down into the very lowest section uh, into the lake, and then we came back and did, I think we did, gosh, I want to say it was from Hunter Bridge down to, yeah, Hunter Bridge to... Probably the McDonald's Bridge. Yeah, yeah, that's where it was. So anyway, that's how Ollie and I met, and, and we covered, boy, we covered a bunch of water there there uh, in over that, that those couple of days and really had just a nice time but we used so many different techniques you know we didn't we didn't i don't think we dry fly fish because it was cold and windy uh both of those days were, were cold and windy one was overcast one was a little clearer but we we nymphed we streamer fished with streamers we fished with small midges we fished we just fished a ton of different things through all that those different types of water it's good to get out and just try different things and it was nice just to sit in the boat and not have to worry about you know getting it ready for one day and getting it cleaned up for the next and and as you said I kind of laughed all ago when you said you were thinking about oh you know I gotta gotta get the gear ready for the next day there's a lot more to this than 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 just okay I'm gonna run by the store and grab some food and I'll be good to go you know you you always I always end up having tie flies the night before it seems like uh which is which is kind of that's my that's my problem you know that I create myself but but the but when you were saying that, I was thinking of all the different gear that we used too over those those couple of days. You know, the longer leaders, the shorter leaders, the 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 fishing the grass and fishing the the cut banks, fishing through the through the trees, through the through the root balls and all that. I mean, just all those different little things that all those different places that we fished and types of water that we fished required something slightly different, and that was all on one tailwater. You know, we spent that whole day, whole, both of those days on the Watauga, but we fished a ton of different ways. You can hear Ginger the Wonder Gold into the background wanting out. We fished a ton of different ways over those two days. You know, you were talking about different rods. Your first rod, you said, was six foot, six foot six inches. Is six that and right? a half foot eagle claw. Yeah. I think my dad got it for 10 bucks. Which is the yellow rod. It's yellow. Yeah, yellow rod with the kind of the yellowish gold mm-hmm. uh, hardware on I it. I think yeah. they still make We've them. all... And yeah. it's a buggy yeah, whip. Do. It is an absolute buggy whip, full flex all the way. It's a noodle rod. And those are actually full flex rods. Orvis has a new line of full flex fiberglass rods for people who want that real delicate, soft dry fly rod. So their softer rods are making a comeback for the small stream guys. Not that I'm trying to push anybody to buy a new fly rod either, because that's not what we're doing here. Although if you need one, you need one, right? I've got about 20 <laughs> in my, I, I, I got rods for sale. I've got so many. <laughs> Dave, you mentioned something uh, really great about the fishing, the two days we had fishing and the variety of water that we fished, which I do love. Uh, my wife and I love going to Montana and going to the Madison. We've been three times. And the Madison River in Ennis, Montana is a 50-mile riffle. It is uniform from top to bottom. Every section, no matter what section you do, they float like 15 miles a day. It is a giant riffle. It's gorgeous water. But you basically fish one method. We were tight line nymphing no indicator uh usually a girdle bug with a print snip for a uh, a big print snip with a little pheasant tail and every year we've gone they're basically using the same flies and <laughs> as a fishing guide i want to ask these guys do you ever get bored of throwing the same flies i'm pretty sure those are the same flies you had on last year when i was here and they laugh going hey don't fix it if it ain't broke but I yeah. love the variety of our tailwaters because they change hourly. They change daily. They change weekly. People often ask me, what's your favorite fly? I'm like, well, what time of the day are you talking about? What time of year are you talking about? And they're like, well, how can it be that, uh, that different? So my guide from Montana came and fished with me, and he was overwhelmed at the variety of water we had, overwhelmed at the different techniques that we did. And we fished two days, like you and I, and the river fished completely different from day one to day two. And we got to show him a lot of things that he'd never seen or even heard of out there. So which one's better, the Madison, where you do the same technique day after day, year after year, or ours that changes daily, hourly? I like them both. I like the variety that fly fishing brings where, um, and even on the Madison, I'm, I'm probably dumbing it down a little bit. We still had to change flies. They don't just change flies like we do. I might change flies 20 times a day. They might change flies twice a day, and they're still catching fish. But I like 
doing battle with these fish and scratching my head because I'm looking right at them. I'm looking right at them in the river and going, <laughs> okay, what do you want this hour? What do you want today? And I, and I kind of like that, matching wits with this pea-sized brain fish. And it really puts you in your place when you got all these fish swimming around you and they're not eating the cheese. I find that humbling, but I also find it challenging in a way that I want to keep learning more about the craft. So as you're working through your day, let's talk about the flies. You're talking about you change flies. <laughs> so if, you, if you're going tomorrow, I don't want to know your absolute favorite. Oh, yeah, I'll tell you because it'll change the next day. Okay, so let's talk about let's talk about it. If we're going tomorrow, how many times are we going to change flies and what techniques are we going to use? Up okay, the, the million-dollar question is how do you know when to change flies? And the beauty of fishing the Holston or the Watauga, when the water is off, you can see the fish. And if you get a dozen, maybe two dozen drifts over that little group of fish, you're changing flies. Or the other option is, is you pick up anchor and you go to a different group of fish. And sometimes that's a better option if you know that a boat's been parked on that little group of fish, let's go find a fresh group of fish. Let's keep the same flies on. Y'all do a lot of stopping, don't you? Y'all do a lot of stopping and fishing. On low water, yes. On high water, yeah. uh, it's a little tricky anchoring on high water. And, yeah. and just for the, the people who aren't familiar with the tailwaters, a tailwater means a river that's coming out of a dam for hydroelectric purposes or, or flood control purposes. So our water level changes three feet over the course of the day. So a lot of times in the morning, the water's off. It's like slack tide at the beach. You can see fish everywhere. But then at some point, that water's going to come up. And then you have to be a little careful where you anchor so you don't lose your anchor or pull the back of your boat under. So I'm going to go over a group of fish that I had success on yesterday. I'm like, all right, guys, I'll work this group. Let's try these flies. They worked yesterday. And if they did not work in the first two dozen casts, I'm changing that fly. And so when you look at all my fly boxes, they're all organized. They're all labels. The fly box that I go to the most when I'm in Tennessee below the dam are my two different boxes of midges. I've got my dark midges in one little container, and then I've got my red and purple midges in the other container. And this year was all about purple. I don't know why. Purple midge, <laughs> size 18 or size 20. And uh, for you guys who may not know, that's the size of an eyelash. They're tiny. Uh, silver right. bead was better most days than the gold bead, but sometimes they want the gold bead. So the midges I rely on heavily uh, below the dams. I might fish it behind a big right. dry fly, a big cricket, a big Chernobyl ant, but it's usually going to be a small midge or a small pheasant tail. Those are your go-to flies on the tailwaters. So you're not really changing your pattern. You're really just changing the color of the pattern when you're fishing below right. the dams. Now, let's say, Dave, that tomorrow you and I were going to go fish a small stock stream. Let's say they just stock it. Let's say tomorrow's October the 1st. So now are we moving back over into North Carolina a little bit? Yep. Okay. So if we were, uh, if we had a small stream queued up, small stock stream, and I actually helped stock the stream so I know where the fish go, we're going to do flies with a lot of color and a lot of motion. Wooly buggers. You can't keep it out of their mouth. Egg patterns. Right. It's not even fair. San Juan worms. It should be illegal. But my favorite thing to do on these freshly stocked fish the brookies, for whatever reason, they and we stock browns, brooks, and rainbows at the same time. The brookies will get in the back of the pools. Those are called tailouts, where it gets real shallow, like shin deep and gravelly, kind of where fish like to spawn. They'll all line up there in like fighter formation, side by side, just all lined up. But you take a big stimulator, throw it downstream, <laughs> and twitch the yep. mess out of it. And those things come up like tarpon and hammer yep. those caddis or stimulators or, or whatever. And it's very exciting to uh, have somebody who's done some fishing and they'll say, you want me to throw downstream? I'm like, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then twitch it. <laughs> and they're like, wait, you want me to throw this dry fly downstream and then twitch it? I'm like, twitch the crap out of it. And then yeah. once they had that first brookie, just porpoise on it, like this is way fun. So the <laughs> flies that we, we would use on freshly stocked fish are just meat and potato, over the counter, run of the mill, whatever flies. But the second week, if we went the second week, David, would have to downsize and slow down our technique. And then the third week, they're already getting tough. And then by the fourth week, I'd be right. like, Dave, let's wait till next month when they restock. By week four, yeah, right. those easy stock fish, you've gone from a hero to almost a zero in four weeks because those poor fish in four weeks, they just get their teeth kicked in and they get real small. And then we're back to our midges that we use on the tailwaters. By the time they're done with woolly boogers and mop flies and eggs and worms and all the golly stuff, by the end of the month, you're using size 20 midges and still catching right. them. So you go from 
you go from fishing dirty to fishing clean within a month. You really you? do. And I get to see this yeah. played out month after month after month. Here's a common story I hear from my customers. Who go, Ollie, I fished Helton Creek on the 3rd, and we wore them out. But then we went yep. three weeks later, and we couldn't get anything. I'm like, well, welcome to delayed harvest fishing. In those three weeks, you can be on the same weather conditions. You can be the first person on the water. The water level can be the same. But they are completely behaving different than they did on week number one and week number two. Now, let's say, David, that we were going to go wild trout fishing tomorrow. And hopefully it's just you, not two people. Wild trout fishing around here. It's a little tough with two people because you have to leapfrog so much. When you pull up to delayed harvest stock water, you can just pile a big group of people on a bridge. No stealth, no craftiness. You just start bombarding those fish and you have success rate. But if you try that on the wild streams of just bombarding and, and blazing through the woods and stumbling around, you're not even going to see a fish. So we would have to ratchet down and go, okay, here's how we're going to go from stock water to wild trout water. And we're talking streams that are you know, 10 to 15 feet across, steep gradient, boulder strewn, trees everywhere. So every time you approach a hole, you got to do it with the utmost care if the water's clear. And then you get one or two casts into that pool, maybe more if there's some fast water dumping in, but pretty much they're going to bite it on those first couple of casts. And then you advance to the next one. So you're constantly advancing, constantly advancing on the small wild trout streams. And so it's all about stealth. The one advantage of the small wild trout streams is fly selection. They'll hit anything. They don't see a lot of flies. They don't see a lot of fishermen. There's not a lot of food in our granite base stream. So a plain caddis, plain Adams, plain B-dead prints, you're covered. You, that's all you need. Those couple flies right there, all you need. You don't need midges. You don't need all the fancy stuff. You don't need the gaudy stuff. So the difference between the stock water and the wild trout water, it's almost like you're after a different species of fish when you go from one to the other with the fly selection and the way that you approach the water. Stealth is critical. It is. So unfortunately, David, a lot of people kind of get their feet wet with the stock water and they get a little confident going, okay, I'm going to hike up into Wilson Creek. And they'll call me up and go, Ollie, I never saw a fish. I'm like, well, were you stealthy? And they go, no, we just right. walk up to the pools and we didn't see anyone. Well, you didn't make that that very critical transition in your approach to the water. And sadly, a lot of people never leave stock water. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. They never, it, they never want to make that leap to get to the wild trout water. And then, of course, there's the leap to the tailwaters. Again, almost like a different species of fish. And I've told you the story when I confidently waded into South Holston with my small stream flies and got skunked. I didn't right. know what a midge was. I didn't own a 10-foot leader. I didn't own six or seven X tippet. And so I had to relearn, just like I did on the stock stream and just like I did on the wild stream, I had to relearn how to trout fish the tailwaters. And that's the beauty of the sport. You have so many varieties of water types and methods to go after this. So you'll never get bored with it. You can't get bored with a sport because after 27 years, you think, God, that guy knows it all. Heck no, I don't. I'm still learning the craft. <laughs> and I just learned how to Euro fish about five years ago. And I love Euro fishing. And I even took a guy 10 car fishing and it looked fun. And uh, so I'm probably going to have a 10 car ride in my Christmas stocking <laughs> this year. So I don't badmouth one method or the other. I like them all. I like all the different methods of fly fishing and, uh, and not just for trout, for all kinds of fish. So the uh, Euro nipping, or as you lovingly refer to it as redneck, redneck check. Redneck check. It's so much fun, and the Watauga was a perfect place to do that too. Just in certain spots, the water was, was just exactly the right speed where you didn't have to work too, too hard, but you knew that there were some fish laying in there, and you could just, I mean, it's almost, got stupid for a while it is uh, it is deadly effective it is it's not fair in certain water types and uh right so i tell people that i like the redneck check but does it solve all the world's problems no it doesn't because all of a sudden if we were on the river and a hatch came off we're not going to be able to just tie on a dry fly onto a 22 foot leader with an 11 foot three weight <laughs> rod and make that transition we would actually change our whole gear out if we uh went from the redneck check to dry fly fishing and um, I do see a lot of the youth, and there's a lot of youth. If you look at the demographics of people in fly fishing, a lot of it are the, the late teenagers, early 20s, college kids are 
are yeah. absolutely filling the sport up. And I love to see the youth movement. But some of them go straight to the Euro, and then that's all they do. I've seen some get on it and never get off of it until they just get bored and think that, okay, there's nothing else for me to do because I'm catch. i used to catching 30, 40, 50 fish a day. Exactly. And, and you want me to throw a fish this other way and catch four or five fish a day, you know, or 10 or 20 fish a day. They Sometimes some some folks' minds can't handle that, and that's that goes for all ages too. Because I have seen a gentleman or two that do the same. They go through the same pattern of, I'm going to check, I'm going to check nymph, I'm going to euro nymph, and I'm going to catch a bunch of fish. And they want to talk about it. You know, I caught 40 fish today. Well, you went right to where they stocked yesterday, and you caught every fish there. Yes, but if you move down the river a half a, a mile or two miles, I'm not sure that you could catch and have that great a day, and I'm not sure that you would feel as satisfied as to be able to say, I've caught 30, 40, 50 fish a day, you know? So that's part of it as well, that, you know, don't those expectations are a big part. So the next thing with expectations, Dave, in your guiding and in my guiding, and I get this a lot for my advanced anglers, first question out of the box, are we dry fly fishing today? I'm like, well, we'll tie one on. <laughs> and uh, and then, you know, a half hour later, we're either got a, hopefully got a dropper on or God forbid we yeah. go to total nymph fishing. So a lot of the more right. experienced, well-traveled, well-educated, well-financed anglers, they talk about dry flies endlessly and we try to accommodate that but there are times the dries are not going to work and some of them are just stubborn about it and i cannot make a fish rise i don't care how sexy that fly is there are times the fish will not eat dry flies you're right so that that's a tough expectation to meet when people say well i was just on the henry's fork and we wrecked him on caddis like good for you i wish i was on the henry's fork right now wrecking fish on dries but we're not going to get many on dries today we can try uh, and yeah. when we finally do get a fish, uh, I do love doing some oddball stuff. Like every now and then in November, we'll get fish come up and eat a Chernobyl ant. They're not supposed to eat a Chernobyl ant in November. And that right. tickles me to death that these fish should not be looking up. They should be looking at blue-winged olives maybe, little tiny mayflies, right. but not a big cricket in November. I had one year, three or four years ago, where we caught fish on Chernobyl ants 12 months out of the year, even in January, even in February. Not many, but we did it just to yeah. say that we did it. So meeting the expectations as a guide is tough when I have a guy who only wants to dry fly fish. And with group trips, that gets a little brutal because all the boats are competing. It's good competition when I'm competing with my fellow guides. We all get along well. But I got the guy who wants to dry fly fish, and he keeps looking out the boats who are wet fly fishing and they're wrecking fish. And that right. makes for a tough day at lunch where your guy's not catching many fish and everybody else is wrecking fish because they're fishing wet flies. So I got this other technique to solve that age-old problem on the South Holston. Okay. A guy gets in my car right out of the box. Ollie, we fishing dry flies today. I'm like, no, but I got something just as good. And go, well, tell me. Go, let me just show you. So this is with the water off. And this is not just stock fish. This is, these are wild fish too. Mixed bag is um, we'll get to the water, drop anchor. There's fish everywhere. There's just fish everywhere you look on the South Olsen. And I'll tie on the obnoxious mop fly or the shunned egg fly. And he goes, what are you doing with that? I'm like, just watch. And I'll flip that thing about four feet past my oar blade, let it sink down the bottom, and fish come flying from all directions. <laughs> and some of them will peel off. But all of a sudden, I've got this guy's entry. He's like, oh, my God, look at all those fish. And then when one of them finally eats it, you actually see the fish open and close their oh, mouth. Yeah. And most of the time, they don't react. I'm like, dude, hit, 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 hit. He's on it. But after they buy in, they're like, this is incredible. Why isn't everybody doing this? I'm like, well, thank God they aren't all doing this. So it's a very effective sight fishing method, which always adds an appeal to any type of fishery, to have these fish come from five or six feet away, zoom in on that fly, and just hammer it right there four feet past my oar blade it is way cool and i've been doing it for like 20 <laughs> years so it's a little more like euro fishing because you're fishing a nymph without an indicator right right but you can also see it exactly you got to let it get slack for it to sink down to the bottom then you start hopping this thing like a crappy jig and so it's not exactly <laughs> exactly euro fishing but it's pretty close now hang on a minute ollie I thought you're supposed to always fish dries on the South Holston unless the water's running and then you go to big seven-inch streamers. Is that not true? Seven-inch streamers is not my cup of tea, and I'll tell you why. I'm too old, and uh, I have done the articulated, giant, pound-the-bank, 
seven weight rods and by the end of the day oh, you're, yeah. you're physically ruined and uh, yep. the good thing is on the south holston there are these long straightaways where i can see all the young guys the ones with the flat bill caps the trucker caps yep they're always <laughs> out there with seven weight rods pounding the bank on these massive articulated flies the ones from kelly gallup out west the big circus yep. peanuts and all that stuff which i love i love those flies and i'm watching them and i'm watching them and i'm watching them and i will occasionally see them catch up nice 14 inch brown but are they bringing in the big 10 pounders i've yet to see it happen i think it happens at really? night and i think it happens when the water's nah. dirty but i have spent yeah. enough hours doing it myself and enough hours watching these guys do it to say this is not going to be for my now if you came david we would do it but for my run-of-the-mill angler we're not going to streamer fish no now an interesting side note on streamer fishing george daniels the guy who's the authority on euro fishing wrote the book dynamic fishing came and streamer fished the south wholesome with one of my fellow guides and i called up my buddy at the end of the day he's like how george should he goes dude he caught more 20 plus inch fish than anybody i've ever seen i was like what was he doing what was he throwing he said he had about a two inch olive little woolly bugger thing pulled it one <laughs> to two feet off the bank and reapplied it did not pull it all the way back to the boat and he said he wrecked fish on this little two inch little store-bought woolly bugger looking thing i'm like that's interesting. And George Daniels, yeah. I went and saw him speak in Asheville, and he did a talk on streamer fishing and mentioned the South Holston said, most of those young guys are out there hitting the banks with seven-inch streamers, and maybe they'll catch a fish. I hope they do. But we went down the bank with these little tiny streamers and wrecked fish at will. Now, on the Madison, it's all about the giant articulated. And so I think you have to be accomplished like you are. You have to be in the mindset that this is going to be a little bit like musky fishing, 10,000 cast, 40 hours per fish. And maybe it works better on the elk or the caney, but I have not seen the results on the South Holston or the Watauga that I've heard about on other rivers. I've, uh, I th I, we did, we tried, as I said earlier, we tried several different things on the Watauga. We didn't go to the South Holston when I was over there that time. I've been there and had a lot of the same luck that you're talking about like you have, but we we tried several different things on the Watauga uh, that usually are normally going to work on the Caney Fork or normally going to work on the Elk or normally going to work in Arkansas, but it just didn't really produce fish like some of the stuff that you do day in, day out over there. So I think you just kind of had your, your fly fishing has to evolve, and if you don't, then you kind of get stuck in this rut of, well, it was a pretty good day or it was a great day. All of a sudden, it's a great day, you know, and – but if you don't evolve and you know try, even if it's not, even if it's the same fly fished a different way, sometimes that's the, that's what you need to do. I agree with that. Here's how we can. I've got a story to to uh, back that up. Years ago, uh, Jason Reap, one of my fellow guides who's been guide with me for a long time now, he had a guest show up. This is when we were in the famous trophy section. That's all we did. The trophy section of the Watauga had big fish in it. He had a guest come from out west, and he brought the Chernobyl Ant before it was mainstream. And he showed it to Jason, and Jason goes, that, that's not going to work here. These fish are feeding on midges. Well, they went down the river, and they had a great day catching fish on midges and small pheasant tails and our usual stuff. And within the sight of the takeout, the guy goes, well, can I tie on this Chernobyl ant? Jason goes, sure, we've already had a great day. And the guy caught like two 19-inch fish within sight of the boat ramp. And Jason went, what just happened? So he showed it to me. And I went, that's BS. These fish are feeding on midges. He goes, Ollie trust me trust me trust me look at the teeth marks in it so i went over there on my day off david hoping that <laughs> nobody would see me tying on this huge bass bug going i'm looking around over my shoulder going god they're gonna think i'm nuts and i ended up catching like a 20 inch fish on my third cast went what just happened so for a couple of years jason and i had the chernobyl ant before it was mainstream it was only on the green river in utah from emmett heath the guy that invented it i think Sorry if I got that wrong. So for several years, we kept that fly very close, and it worked great. But once it hit mainstream, everybody threw it. It stopped working. Yeah. So you have to be, as a guide, I love to look in when people show up. I'm like, let me see your fly box. And I'll say, ooh, that's, that looks good. I've never seen that. Like your big, giant, oversized pheasant tail. We caught fish on that that day. Every pheasant <laughs> tail I had was five times smaller than that. And that made me happy. I'm like, you brought your own bug. You caught some nice fish on the, the wing deer section on your fly. So I'm always, like I told you earlier, there's never going to be a never. There's never going to be an always when it comes to technique or flies or this or this or this. I love trying new flies. And um, and and even when my guys say, we're throwing dries all day, I'm like, we'll try 
we'll try it. Yeah. But we got to drop back and punt when it doesn't work. But I'm all about trying new flies. And the bigger and gaudier the fly, like the mop, those will usually have a real short shelf life. Yeah. Except on stockfish, they'll always work. But we were catching some big browns on the mop five years ago before it was mainstream. That tickled me That's to death thing. that these yeah. highly educated fish were eating this god-awful mop fly. That made me very happy. Uh, some people, the, the purists, would go, that's just trash. I'm like, well, that's kind of funny because it is trash. <laughs> <laughs> I like trashy flies, but I also have some, you know, crypto small midges with that look just like midges. But um, I, I yeah. love the uncertainty of the sport. That's why, that's why we do it. Wow. We've been, uh, golly, we've been all around Western North Carolina. Started in Charlotte, went out to the coast, came back to Western North Carolina. South America. Delved into Tennessee a little bit, South America. You've had quite a quite a fishing life haven't you but i've got more i got more people still ask me david and i'm sure they still ask you do you still like to fish i'm like you ought to see my house it looks like a fly shop fish art old bamboo rods on the wall wicker creels the first time my wife then girlfriend came into my house she goes so you live in a fishing shop i went it's kind (laughs) of a fish motif I dream about kind fishing, of. think about fishing, tie flies, love talking to other fishing. I love hanging out with fishing guides. I uh, love talking to sport. Uh, still, I think my favorite is teaching beginners. It's probably my yeah. biggest passion of being a guide is teaching somebody something that took me so long to learn. But I also love it when every now and then I get somebody like you who can fish, who knows what a mend is. That's also a, <laughs> a special day that you know we sit there and talk flies all day. When you have oh, a guide yeah. in your boat, it, the day goes by pretty quick. It does, doesn't it? It's, it the expectations are usually normal. Yeah. Like they're not too high. They're not too low. They're kind of they're in that zone yeah. there of, okay, this is going to be a good day, and we're going to catch some fish, and it may not be the biggest one in the river, but we're going to catch some, and, and they're going to understand all right, exactly what's going on pretty much the whole day. And you talk the craft. You talk the craft, all the new stuff. And, and, and I think as you fish, so some of my the folks that fish with me and have fished with me over the years, I think that – with them, they kind of get into this, all right, I know that we're going to do this here and do this here, and we're going to try something, if we can, a little different. But they kind of know what to expect, and they just settle in, have a nice day. They're able to relax. They're able to catch some fish. They're able to forget about whatever it is that they're trying to forget about and then just enjoy their day. And I think that's a big thing. Don't get me wrong. I want everybody to catch fish. I know you do too. But, man, there's just something about getting out on the river and and just being able to forget about everything else. Well, the COVID has actually been good for our business because of that very thing. But people needed to get outdoors more so than ever. Uh, so the, the rivers, the poor fish, they got a break over April. But, boy, we came back on them hard in May. Boy, we did. And the fish haven't had any break since then. But the fisheries have held up. We got new stock fish coming in next month october so uh i think fly fishing any kind of fishing outdoor pursuit is uh what people need right now for sure absolutely need to get away well ollie i appreciate you stopping by here and talking with us we've like i said we've been all around north carolina all around upper east tennessee uh you can find ollie at blueridgeanglers.com you can find me at southeasternfly.com don't forget the contest for the wittiest five-star review for the swag bag thanks again for stopping by ollie hey i'm looking forward to uh, getting you back in the boat or actually even better coming over and seeing your neck of the woods to see if any of my tricks work over there or to defer to you if my tricks aren't working and uh let's keep in touch and i sure did enjoy our time together david well we need to get you over here during the shad kill in in january february march april and we'll see what we can see if we can't wrestle up some some big fish in there so for everybody out there appreciate you stopping by and see you next time on southeastern fly